Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again, finally talking about something else besides tea. I mean, great subject and all, but we haven't had anything except tea here at the CHP since those backhouse episodes from July 2014. For this 150th episode milestone event in the history of the China History Podcast, we're going to look at the Hakka people of China. Senior management here at the CHP has tasked me with reading and answering all emails. So I can say with some authority that this topic is oft-requested. I had the Hakkas on the short list of topics that I initially put together back in 2010, so this one is long overdue. Before we get right on it, let's all be honest, anyone even remotely familiar with Chinese history has heard of the Hakka people, or perhaps counts one or two among their friends or acquaintances. Perhaps you're Hakka yourself. They've been mentioned from time to time throughout these podcast episodes, but who are the Hakkas and where do they get that name? Are they a minority ethnic group? What part of China are they from? Why do they seem to be all over the world? To an English speaker, that's a catchy name. Hakka. You remember that one after hearing it just once. It's a Cantonese word. Hak means guest and ka means family or people. In English, this is usually translated to mean guest people. Well, what does that mean? Guests of who? The Hakkas have shared the stage with everyone else who made history in China for the past 2,000 years. I thought in this episode we can get a nice, simple overview and appreciation about their place in the big China history picture. Because they go so way back, you know how it is. Records are scarce and whatever there is from way back when was often speculation built on ancient genealogy records. So even in our 21st century, the $64,000 question still remains, where exactly did the Hakkas originate? There are several theories that have come up over the years. Thanks to a great deal of scholarly research that still hasn't let up, several general conclusions have been made about the origin of the Hakka people. When you're talking about written records... Anything from before the 10th century is just too far back. So little survives as far as written records go compared with since the Song Dynasty. China was just too old for the writing substrates of the day. Even if it's carved in stone, a thousand years will take care of that. But the Hakka people, by and large, maintain the records of their ancestors very meticulously, and in the present day... Plenty of Hakka people can recount their family's genealogy going back 20 and 30 generations to the Song Dynasty. And from these records, you can trace where the clan went from north to south and once or twice again after the initial southern migration. There are approximately, give or take, more than 80 million Hakka people worldwide. They, along with their one-time nemeses, the Cantonese, Chaoshanese, and Fujianese, were the highest groups of early Chinese immigrants who spread out all over the world, mostly in the 19th century. In China today, there are maybe 35 to 40 million Hakkas, about 3% of the total China population. After all the research, I found there's a story that has been put together that, though, filled with stereotypes, gives one an easy-to-digest version of the events that shaped the Hakka identity. At first, you might think the Hakkas are one of the 56 ethnic minority people in China, but they're not. They're Han Chinese. Yep, they're part of the 91.5%. 
They're Han Chinese, but speak a dialect, special only to them. The Hakka dialect has six tones. Cantonese has eight, and Mandarin has four, or five if you count the neutral tone. Mandarin speakers will be able to pick up a few words of Hakka here and there, but overall it's as unintelligible as the next dialect. Some linguists have said that Hakkanese was the bridge language between Mandarin and Cantonese. After reading that, I went on YouTube and pulled up a few videos of people speaking and singing Hakkanese, and I definitely could see why someone might say that. Hearing the Hakka dialect is certainly isn't Mandarin or Cantonese, but it seemed as if it was something in between these two. Some historians, or Hakkas, claim that the Hakka dialect is the original Chinese from the most ancient times, and some take this even further by saying the Hakka are the true ears to pure Chinese culture, because when they left the north at the end of the western Jin, they were the only ones who kept the original culture and traditions of the central plain intact. The Han, who stayed behind, had their Shanxi, Henan, Shandong, Yellow River culture corrupted by the invading Turks and Mongols. The Hakka language is closer to the Gan group of languages than anything else. The Chinese character Gan is what you'll see on the license plates of cars registered in Jiangxi province. The land of Gan, where the Gan River flows and the city of Ganzhou is located. It's for this reason that some have postulated that the Hakka aren't from the north or north-central part of China at all. They're actually southerners from around Jiangxi. Again, there's no complete agreement on the origins of the Hakka people, except to say they were probably from the north. University of Oregon Center for Asian and Pacific Studies, Professor Mary Arbaugh, had written there are about 33 million Hakka in China who speak the Hakka language. 33 million. Not a small number. That's, that's all of Australia's population, and Sweden too. You could throw in Pitcairn Island in the Vatican City. One interesting thing I read was that Hakka was perhaps the language spoken during the Tang Dynasty. They say this because when you read Tang poetry in the Hakka language, all the rhyming patterns return that are missing when reading it in the Putonghua pronunciation. One of the problems regarding their origins is, like I said, not having much to hang your hat on as far as any surviving records regarding their exact origin. Most scholars agree they came from the heartland in China, along the Yellow River, Shanxi, Henan, northern Anhui, and Hubei. Some versions say Henan and Shandong, but it was up where the traditional cradle of Chinese civilization was situated. If you recall from CHB episode 22, I discussed the story of Sima Yen and how, at the end of the Three Kingdoms period, he snatched power from the Cao Wei rulers and went on to defeat the kingdoms of Shu and Eastern Wu. He founded the Jin Dynasty in 280 CE, and for the first time since the Han, China was unified under one emperor. The Jin was divided up into the Western and Eastern periods. The Western Jin, under founder Jin Wu Di, set up their palace in Luoyang. So early in the movie, the founding emperor dies in 289. It was immediately all downhill from there, and the emperorship went from a bad emperor to a tragic one. And you'll recall that last Western Jin emperor, Emperor Min, this 
final Western Jin emperor's last chapter in life at the hands of his barbarian captors almost rivaled the Song Emperor Huizong as far as tragic and degrading went. Famine was rampant by the end of the Western Jin dynasty. Even the emperor lived on scraps. The reason for all this hardship was because of the Wuhu, the so-called Five Barbarian Tribes, Xiongnu, Jie, Xianbei, Di, and Qiang. These guys surrounded China to the north and west. You remember from past episodes, they had been the scourge of China since the Han Dynasty. Now, mostly Xiongnu and Xianbei tribes began acting the role that the future 12th century Jurchens would play when they steamrolled over the Song and forced the royal house of Zhao to flee to the south, below the Yangtze. In 311, the western Jin were booted out of Luoyang and the capital was sacked. Their new capital moved to the south in Jiankang, which is today's Nanjing, with the mighty Yangtze acting as their great wall, so to speak. The Eastern, or later Jin, were able to make a comeback and lasted another century from 317 to 420 before they too were taken down by Liu Yu, who founded the Liu Song, the first of the southern dynasties of the Nanbei Chao. Now this is the critical moment in Hakka history. It was during this time in the 4th century CE when the invasions from the north began and the western Jin began to fold that these Han Chinese people, living mostly where the Yellow River flowed, decided to get as far away from the invading Xiongnu and Xianbei people as possible. En masse, this group of Han, who all had this common ancestral language and culture, picked up and started heading south. And they brought with them this language that, over the coming centuries, would blend and adapt to the lands where they later might settle in. And according to tradition... After a period of migrating southward, they coalesced around a place called Shirbi Village. It's right on the Fujian side of the Jiangxi-Fujian border. That was their Yan'an, so to speak. This place, Shirbi Village, is what many who call themselves Hakka refer to as the Zudi, Ninghua County in Fujian. The other ancestral place not too far away to the south, maybe two to three hours from Shirbi by car, is Tingzhou, or present-day Changting. These are two rather sacred places in Hakka history. There are two popular versions about the number of migrations and when the Hakka people made them. Luo Xianglin was an early 20th century Hakka scholar. Professor Luo, 1906 to 1978, provided groundbreaking research into the origins of the Hakkas and their Migrations from north to south through painstaking study and analysis of genealogy records going back to before the Song, Luo Xianglin concluded that the Hakka people carried out five waves of migration. In his 1933 book, An Introduction to the Study of the Hakkas, Ke Jia Yanjiao Daoliao, Luo postulated on what caused these migrations and where these Hakkas ended up. Another popular analysis was proposed by Mary Arbaugh. Her important work that I read in the China Quarterly was entitled The Secret History of the Hakkas, the Chinese Revolution as a Hakka Enterprise. In her work, among many other interesting things, she says there were four migrations, not five. I mentioned it's popularly believed that the first wave 
of Hakka migration occurred as the Western Jin began to fall apart, early 4th century CE. This would have been right before the Council of Nicaea, the time of Constantine I in the West. Barbarian invasions, social unrest and upheavals, disease and famine, high taxation and severe poverty, nothing like those things, to get people to pick up and vacate the premises. So they left their original homeland in China first to escape the violence of these northern neighbors. When people started fleeing the north, it wasn't just the Hakka people. There were other aristocrats and commoners from all over north China who were packing up and heading south. Not every single Han Chinese bolted from the north. That was impossible. Most had to look at their meager options and choose to tough it out rather than migrate and face an uncertain future. Another migration of Hakkas from the north happened towards the end of the Tang Dynasty, due mainly to the turbulence caused by the Huangchao Uprising from 881 to 884. The Tang Dynasty, by that time, was already not long for this world, and their slow demise ushered in a period of instability and disunity in northern China that would last until Zhao Kuangyin would found the Song Dynasty in 960. The next time that a significant wave of Hakka people hit the road and migrated from north to south occurred when our old friend, Emperor Huizong, got chased out of Kaifeng by his northern Jurchen neighbors. As you recall from that four-part Huizong series, the Jurchens invaded from the north of China and made life unbearable for the Han Chinese. As it happened at the end of the Western Jin and after the Huangchao uprising during the Tang, yet again at the end of the Northern Song, the Hakkas, as a group, made a move southward to escape to more peaceful lands. The later fourth and fifth waves of migration were more about the Hakkas leaving the mothership in eastern Fujian, parts of Hubei, western Jiangxi, and northeast Guangdong, and spreading out from there to other parts of China and throughout the world, in fact. It was said that those Hakka who had earlier left the north and were all settled in Jiangxi province, provided assistance to the escaped Zhao royal family when they made their perilous trip to the south, to Lin'an, where they established the southern Song court. This is an early example of how the Hakkas gained a reputation in the eyes of the government for their reliability in answering the call of duty. More about this later. It's generally agreed that it was during the Southern Song that the Hakkas first made their way in greater numbers from Fujian to Guangdong province. And it's during the Southern Song that the Hakka, for the first time, began showing up in government records as a distinct group of people. They were referred to as not the original inhabitants of the places south of the Yangtze where they concentrated. These last waves of migration happened during the late Ming Dynasty and into the Qing. And I guess it's really about this time that the Hakka identity began to solidify in China. Before, they had run for their lives, chased by fierce northern Turkic and Mongol armies. Now, after they had carved out a new home for themselves in the south, henceforth, they'd be running from and sometimes facing down their fellow Han Chinese. In addition to the usual causes for migration... A rather large explosion in China's population in the Ming and Qing put even further pressure on available agricultural lands. The Hakkas, if you could say anything about them, were natural farmers. Although millions emigrated overseas and engaged in all manners of muscle jobs and other professions, for the most part in China, they farmed. 
The Hakka dream was that one's son might rise through the system to become a government official. Education was a Hakka priority. And although the deck was often stacked against them as far as becoming an official, many Hakka scholars performed well enough in the civil service exams to go on to careers in the government. But short of that, agriculture was the primary Hakka profession. They knew how to do that well, and it didn't matter how poor the growing conditions were. Hakka farmers were notorious for being able to farm any land, no matter how high up in the mountains they had to farm. They were, by the early Qing, well known for their toughness and reputation for moving about and acting as pioneers, developing new vacant lands. If you recall from previous CHP episodes, after 1644, when the Manchus took over and founded the Qing dynasty, the most famous holdout to Qing authority was Zheng Chenggong, better known as Kaxinga. From his Taiwan base, he kept up the fight against the Manchus. His objective was to overthrow the Manchus and restore the Han Chinese Ming Dynasty. So much pressure had Kaxinga caused raiding the Guangdong and Fujian coast that the Kangxi Emperor in 1662 called for an evacuation of those coastal areas. Everyone who lived there had to move inland, 50 li. That's about 19 miles. This sorry state of affairs lasted until 1669. It was a disaster for the people there who were all farmers and fishermen. Nothing could have been more disruptive to their lives. The Cantonese were hardest hit by this evacuation decree. During the period of this ban, all manners of natural disasters had hit those areas hard. I read... About 90% of the Cantonese affected by this Qianhailing, as it was known, perished and were not able to return when the coast was finally clear. Either there was nothing to return to, or the people had perished from all the blowback of the Kangxi Emperor's edict. That became the root of a very big problem. When the Kangxi Emperor called the whole thing off and permitted everyone to return from where they came, the officials in the Imperial Palace were alarmed to discover that there weren't enough people left in the region to repopulate the vacated coastal areas. The original inhabitants, the Bandi, as they were known, at least in Mandarin, had mostly died or moved elsewhere. The word went forth from the imperial palace to recruit people and to offer government incentives to migrate to those areas, mostly along the Guangdong northeast coast, this was from about the Chaozhou Shanto area north along the coast. The Hakkas enthusiastically answered the government's call and they began to settle these areas and put them back together after all the devastation wrought by all those years of everything nature could throw at the South China coast. Well, I read everyone sort of got along for a while, but it didn't take long before the Bandi and the rather recently arrived Hakkas came to blows. These Bandi were called Yue people. Yue means Guangdong. You'll see this character on all Guangdong registered license plates. They all speak variations of Cantonese, of the Yue dialect. So right off the bat, these two neighbors, the Bandi, the local Yue people, and these newly arrived guest people, these Kujiaren, or Hakka, as Kujia is pronounced in Cantonese, lived side by side. But animosities brewed over the circumstances of the Hakka's 
sudden and overwhelming presence in these traditionally Yue lands. The differences between the Yue and the Hakka weren't just linguistic and cultural. The Bandi, having had a running head start on the Hakkas, already long populated the best farmlands. The best areas, the fertile plains, were all taken by the Bandi Yue. So the Hakka, for the most part, took everything that was left over and less desirable. It was less desirable because this land was higher up in elevation, in the hills, and much less fertile. There developed an old saying, quote, He is not a Hakka who is not upon a hill. There is no hill but has Hakkas on it, end quote. So into the 18th century, these wounds festered. And no matter which village these Hakka migrants would go to, they were instantly branded something other than local. No matter where the Hakkas went, Hunan, Guangxi, Sichuan, Hainan, Taiwan, and most of all, Fujian, Jiangxi, and Guangdong, they were called Hakka for a reason. Even though they always came in relatively large numbers and stuck to themselves, the Bandi, the local people, derided them. And a kind of prejudice against the Hakka people was created that was handed down from generation to generation. And at first, this word Hakka was a Cantonese derogatory term. They weren't trying to sound polite, calling them guest people. But it was the Hakka who seized that term from the Cantonese with its negative connotations and took possession of this term and after taking ownership were, in the end, quite proud to call themselves Hakka. From about the third migration onward, the city of Meizhou began to evolve into a sort of Hakka homeland. Meizhou comprises what I call the northeast shoulder of Guangdong province. I guess today you can call this region the worldwide center of Hakka culture. The way they speak Hakkanese and Meizhou is considered to be the Biaojun, or standard, that all other flavors of Hakkanese are compared to. Meixian, or Mei County, and neighboring Jieyang, that's Hakka Command Central. You are absolutely guaranteed to be able to find a dish of Yanju Ji and Nyang Dofu almost anywhere you go. In and around Meizhou, northeast Guangdong, southwest Fujian, southeast Jiangxi, the Hakka people had sufficient mass in numbers to turn those parts of this large region into Hakka-controlled territory. But elsewhere, the Hakkas were always the new family on the block and not having that common language or common tradition as the Bandi and eating their unfamiliar foods. Invariably, they were more often than not, rejected by strangers who found the Hakka presence in their own ancestral lands offensive. So with this kind of brimming animosity already bubbling below the surface, it never took long before some sort of land dispute would arise or some outrageous action taken over a wedding agreement between a Hakka and a Bandi. But the littlest things would flare up into these Hatfield and McCoy feuds overnight and would last for years or never get resolved. In Fujian, it was invariably Hakka versus Bandi, who in this case, because they were from Fujian, were the mean people. In Guangdong, the Bandi were the Yue. These weren't the only groups of people often hostile to the Hakkas, but because the greatest concentration of Hakka people was in and around the lands bordering northern Guangdong and southern Fujian, it was these rivalries that are best known. The worst 
Bandi-Haka violence, however, would be seen in the West Pearl River Delta during the bloodiest years of the Bandi-Haka clan wars, or Tu Ke between 1855 and 1867, but 12 years. Partly concurrent with the Taiping Rebellion, there occurred a series of conflicts that in the end left a million people dead. I think I mentioned this upheaval in a previous episode where I discussed why so many Taishan people in particular got up and left their happy and bucolic homes in the West Pearl River Delta. These battles between the Hakka and the Cantonese were often lopsided because the Hakka were much smaller in numbers compared to the Cantonese. Plus, the Cantonese had all the backup support from their overseas relatives. I have read in a few sources the deaths from the Tuke Shiedo were put at about half a million on each side. I have no idea how such statistics were arrived at, but the numbers suggest this was a terrible time for the outnumbered Hakkas and for all the Cantonese who participated willingly or unwillingly in this 12-year conflict. It was more than a decade of misery compounded on the general lawless and unstable state of affairs that existed in China during this Qingchao Monian time. The Opium Wars, the Red Turban Revolt, Taiping Rebellion, Bundi Hakka Clan Wars, the Europeans, the missionaries, wherever the Hakka went. They often faced ostracism from the societies they settled among. Their economic prospects were usually more grim than their Bandi rival. And as I said, they worked the most unfavorable lands. All of these things combined all grew to define the Hakka. Hardworking, not afraid to take on any challenge, quick to adapt, and not afraid to pick up and move to some destination unknown. The Yue and the Min didn't get along with them, and the insults traded back and forth were pretty vicious. The Hakkas were painted by the Yue and Min as barbarian and not pure Han. Their Yellow River origins were not acknowledged, nor was their ancient scholarship and more accomplished ancestors. There was plenty of disrespect heaped on each other, and both sides gave as much as they took. After the foreigners, beginning in the 1840s, barged their way into China, hundreds and hundreds of missionaries flocked to China and were free to roam the countryside to do their work. The missionaries and the oppressed Hakka people seemed made for each other. The missionaries were attracted to the Hakkas and reaped a halfway decent harvest as far as Christian converts went. So successful were they amongst the Hakka that the Hakka represented a disproportionate amount of the total number of converts in the areas the missionaries resided. An oppressed and distressed Hakka might find something attractive in what the missionaries preached. Converting to Christianity wasn't a bad thing at all, but it did upset the traditional social dynamic wherever it happened. On the one hand, some say the Christian missionaries came in and corrupted the pure Hakka culture. On the other hand, the missionaries who did their work in Hakka communities were instrumental in promoting health and education and in sending many young Hakka men to England to study on scholarships. Sometimes Westerners didn't mean to, but they ended up getting caught up in all manners of local politics, and it wasn't rare to be involved in one way or another in matters concerning Bandi and Hakka. The missionaries have also been accused of fueling the myth 
of the stereotypical Hakka, and they didn't shy away from influencing foreign opinions regarding the Bandi-Hakka clan wars. There was constant intermarriage and interaction between Hakka and Bandi. Not in every case was there conflict. Another indirect aspect of the introduction of the Christian missionaries beyond the treaty ports saw the rise and fall of Hong Xiuquan. This self-styled brother of Jesus Christ is going to have his own ideas about Christianity and revolution in China. Hong Xiuquan and his followers built and managed an enterprise called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. And this Taiping rebellion that follows in its wake will not only almost bring the Qing dynasty to its knees and running to the arms of the foreign powers for protection, it will directly and indirectly lead to the death of 20 million people. And there was no estimation on how many tens of millions survived the upheaval, but who suffered terribly due to the conflict that lasted from 1850 to 1864. After listening to enough of these podcasts, everyone knows China had a very, very rough century from 1850 to 1950. From the years leading up to the Taiping Rebellion and immediately afterwards, China, especially from Shanghai South, was going through cataclysmic changes. Central authority had broken down by this time, and for the mass of the peasantry, it was every man for himself. The bad thing about these post-Taiping Rebellion times, as far as the Hakkas were concerned, was that the one primarily responsible for the whole cataclysm was Hong Xiuquan and his God-worship society followers. He was a Hakka, and all the earliest converts to his brand of Christianity were all Hakkas. And the whole Politburo and Standing Committee, so to speak, of the later Taiping Heavenly Kingdom's government were mostly all Hakka. So after all the suffering throughout the land, and after so many people lost so much, it was only human nature that people sought out a scapegoat. And most eyes turned in the direction of the Hakkas. And many Hakkas found themselves, in the 1860s and 70s, having to carry that cross for the Taiping Rebellion debacle. And not only that, during the Red Turban Revolt that led to the Taiping Rebellion, the Hakkas had gained a reputation for aiding the Qing government in tracking down suspected Yue rebels. The enmity between the Bandi Yue and the Hakka ran deep on many levels. The Hakka as a people got a lot of dirty looks due to their heavy involvement in the Taiping Rebellion, but later history will record that their role in creating the Chinese Republic and overthrowing the Manchus will also be very conspicuous. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's Perception Watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guoxie master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. 
There were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N.com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. As you might expect from all these social and economic pressures, this caused yet another wave of Hakka migration. The Hakkas joined the Cantonese, the Chaozhounese, the Hakkian, and others who left China to the Americas, Australia, Europe, Southeast Asia, and Africa to work the mines and plantations and build the railroads. And all across Southeast Asia, the Hakka people carved out enclaves and built lives for themselves and never skipped a beat as far as adhering to their Hakka language, culture, and traditions. Theirs was a portable culture. They took it with them wherever they went. Its earliest roots were planted along the Yellow River in the cradle of North China civilization and were transported to places in Fujian, Jiangxi, Guangdong, all the way to Sichuan. And now, in the aftermath of the Taiping Rebellion and in the face of so much hardship in a China that was so down on her luck, the Hakka spread their wings and migrated to places both near to and far from China. They were different from other groups of Han Chinese. The Cantonese, the Xiang, uh, those were the people from Hunan, the Shanghainese, the Min, the Chaoshan people of Chaozhou and Shanto, all these major linguistic groups of southern China with their distinct language and culture were all more or less associated with a single area. Their culture, their language, and their history were all tied to these lands where they predominated. But not the Hakka. Theirs was a language and culture that didn't have its roots anywhere close to where they, in the 19th century, might pull a plow. Meizhou was their homeland, but it was an adopted homeland. The center of Hakka gravity was that region where three provinces came together, Guangdong, Fujian, and Jiangxi. But the Hakka people could be found all throughout southern and southwestern China. And according to the terms of the Convention of Peking concerning the lease of the Hong Kong New Territories to Britain for 99 years, any Hakka among the 84,000 or so people who already called the NT their home at the time in 1898 was considered a Bandi as far as the Hong Kong government was concerned. And the Hong Kong Bandi had special rights that the rest of Hong Kongers didn't have. They, they held special rights to their lands. They can bury their dead in the hills. They had special rights regarding management of their property. They could act as the role of judge and jury in matters regarding their kinship affairs. In this example, a haka could also be considered bandi if they had gotten to certain places early enough. From this mid-19th century migration, rich haka centers were built in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Burma, and in India. They were fearless and pretty much went wherever the opportunity was. Many had already long blazed the trail early on. Hakka adventurers had been searching for gold in Kelantan since the 17th and 18th centuries. I could probably do a whole podcast series on the Hakkas of Southeast Asia. 
the Hakka people, in the face of all this hardship and all these milestone moments in China's history, began to define their identity and their place in the big picture. In the face of all these derogatory stereotypes, the Hakkas proved themselves as good as the next man, and this contributed to their stubborn determination to stick together, delight in clannishness, and give back whatever they got. The famous writer Han Su Yin was born of a Hakka father and a Flemish mother. She had written regarding the Hakka's migration south after the Mongol invasions of the 13th century, quote, the Hakkas were driven further south or to mountainous poor areas. Because of their mobility, hardihood, and fierceness, the dynasties began to regard the Hakkas as potential pioneers, good for resettling the subpopulated areas. Circumstance thus defined their group character, clannish, thrifty, loyal to each other, bad neighbors, and ready fighters. The name Hakka stuck to them, and they became proud of it." End quote. A prominent early 20th century Hakka historian, Xie Tingyu, wrote, quote, The character of the Hakkas is shown quite clearly in their name and history. They are a strong, hardy, energetic, fearless race with simple habits, but a very contentious and litigious disposition. Self-reliant and active, their rapid expansion and fondness for property have often brought them into conflict with their neighbors. The Hakkas are a people of the future, unhampered by the prejudices or the easygoing slackness of the old landowners. Fundamentally, the Hakka is a farmer, forced by poverty to struggle with the unproductive soil. They usually occupy the hilly and less fertile districts, while the Bandi remain in possession of the fertile deltas and plains. The sexes are not so strictly separated in domestic life as in the case with some of the other Chinese. The women folk are strong and energetic and have never adopted foot binding as a custom. End quote. I took that quote from uh, University of Pittsburgh professor and director of their Asian Studies Center, uh, Nicole Constable. She was quoting Xie to offer an example how the quote legend was passed on. That isn't to say it wasn't true, but this stereotypical narrative persisted nonetheless. The Hakka women are legendary. Now, who is to say a Hakka woman is any harder working than some woman from Jilin or Sichuan? But even I have heard in casual conversations over the years that the Hakka women, and perhaps the Nashi women of Yunnan, are traditionally said to be the most hardworking. With the Hakka women, you know, there were reasons for that. In the 19th century, when so many of their menfolk tried their luck overseas in a foreign land, the Hakka wife left behind would have to pick up the husband's slack in addition to her everyday responsibilities. This included, of course, the children, the grandparents, the finances, the hearth, the home, the animals. I mean, I have a, I have a friend in Hong Kong who told me there was this saying that no Cantonese woman would marry a Hakka man because so big were those shoes of the Hakka women. She'd have to work herself to death to take care of her man and his household at the level of service that only a Hakka woman knew how to do. The expectations were just too high. The Hakka women never had bound feet, so that was something else that contributed to their legendary hard-working ways. The Cantonese disparaged the Hakka men for not binding their women's feet and called them cuckolds for allowing them to run around wild. 
And in all sources I read, there are articles and whatnot that mention Hakka women being regular fixtures at Hong Kong construction sites, working right there alongside the men, doing the hardest jobs, always recognizable by their iconic black hats. That may be the best-known Hakka symbol, those flat black circular hats with 360 degrees of fringe surrounding them. Speaking of 360 degrees, another icon of Hakka culture are their distinctive Tulo buildings. From the outside, they look like round-shaped three- to four-story fortresses. Well, this is what they were meant to be, in a way. They acted as a fortress, as well as a family compound, where everyone in the clan could have a place to live together. These buildings were called Tulo. Tu means earth, and Lo means building. They were these round and also rectangular buildings made from compressed earth or adobe, a meter in thickness. They weren't impregnable castles, but they weren't so easy to take down either. And besides, they kept the entire Hakka community of a certain area all in one place. In times like the Bandi-Hakka clan wars, there was always strength in numbers. And certainly back in those days, everyone liked to hang with their own kind. The round structure of these tulo symbolized union. The rectangular tulo were shaped like the Chinese character hui, as in the verb to return. The ancestral temple was always placed in the center. And of course, whenever addressing ancestors, only the Hakka dialect could be used. The most famous place these days to go see tulo buildings is in Yongding County in Fujian, near the Guangdong border, not too far north of Meizhou. Along with the circular and rectangular Tulo are the Weilongwu buildings. Wei means to surround, Long is a dragon, and Wu means room. Imagine concentric U-shaped structures and you get the main idea. These are mostly to be found in and around Meizhou. During the hottest part of the Cold War, U.S. spy satellites saw these round Tulo and Fujian, and they thought they were missile silos. That's what they look like from outer space with the help of a spy satellite, that is. Hakka culture is famous for, among other things, their foods and their folk songs. If you go on Yoku or YouTube and query Hakka folk songs or the Chinese characters, you'll get plenty of examples of Hakka folk songs. I invite you to go check that out. There is a genre of these mountain songs that Hakka women sing that were quite, you know, flirtatious and risque with the dialogue that would be sung between Hakka women and Hakka men. I mentioned uh, Nyang Tofu and Yan Ji already, perhaps the two most famous Hakka foods. Nyang Tofu is maybe the most special of all and must be on the table of any self-respecting Hakka family at Chinese New Year. The Hakka came from the north, the traditional wheat and barley region of China. Rice, the southern staple, came later to that part of China. So the people in the north were heavy on noodles and dumplings. When the Hakka hastily evacuated their homeland in the north, they found that in the south, there wasn't any wheat available. But they did have dofu, so if you can imagine substituting a cube of dofu for a dumpling wrapper, you know what I'm getting at. The meat would be mixed with dried mushroom, dried shrimp, or fish. It could be steamed or fried, and it's a must on Chinese New Year, mid-autumn festival, weddings, and on your birthday. 
Nyangdofu comes round in shape and squares and many sorts of ways. Nyangdofu is the signature Hakka dish. I also mentioned Yanjuji, salt baked chicken. Yanju means salt baked. This dish is also quintessentially Hakka. The perfect dish for a people on the run who found it impractical to carry live chickens with them. Salt from the earliest times in human history was used as a preservative thanks to how it worked against bacteria, mold, and spoiling. Because of the way sodium chloride was, it sucked out all the moisture through osmosis, and without any moisture, no bacteria could reproduce. A 20% concentration of salt will kill most bacteria and any sort of microbe that a haka on the run might encounter. Seawater is only 3.5% salt. Haka salt-baked chicken is baked inside this layer of rock salt. And authentic yenjuji takes a long time to prepare and make. Hakka pounded tea, their lecha, is another unique Hakka specialty. I neglected to mention this in the uh, History of Tea series. This tea, of which there is a Hunan version as well, consists of tea leaves, herbs, peanuts, pine nuts, or one or two other kinds of seeds or nuts. Some puffed rice or wheat is also added. It's not a tea meant for a tea ceremony. It's more like a soup than anything. It comes in sweet and savory versions. Lei Cha's history goes back to the Han Dynasty, Three Kingdoms period. You can get this wherever Hakka people congregate in big numbers. It's a common food of Singapore and Malaysia as well. You could buy it instant in these easy-to-serve foil packages too. Hakka oil paper umbrellas were also something they did especially well and were also renowned for in their day. And Hakka styles of Kung Fu were great contributions to Chinese martial arts. Mary Arbaugh pointed out in her book about revolution as a Hakka enterprise, uh, Sun Yat-sen was Hakka, and so were many of his lieutenants during the lead-up to 1911. In addition to this, she said, quote, The Hakka are an impoverished and stigmatized subgroup of Han Chinese whose settlements are scattered from Jiangxi to Sichuan. Socialist revolution meshed well with the Hakka tradition of militant dissent, so that their 3% of the mainland population has been three times more likely than other Han to hold high position. Six of the nine Soviet guerrilla bases were in Hakka territory, while the route of the Long March moved from Hakka village to Hakka village. In 1984, half the standing committee of the Politburo were Hakka, end quote. Famous Hakka? Well, I already mentioned Hong Xiu-chen, Sun Yat-sen, Han Su-yin. The list is quite long. The Hakka Hall of Fame, of course, is Deng Xiaoping. He's, he's pretty high up and important. He played down his family's Hakka origins, but he was Hakka, according to Harrison Salisbury, who heard it from Yang Shangkun. Yang had told Salisbury that Deng was descended from Meixian Hakkas. Singapore's former PM, a legend in his own time, Lee Kuan Yew, famously Hakka. In CCP history, there's Zhu De, Ye Jianying, Su Yu, Chen Yi, Hua Guofeng, Hu Yaobang, Guo Moro, all Hakka. Liu Bo Chang and Nie Rong Jun maybe were Hakka, but this hasn't been proved. Zhang Guotao, Mao's rival for power in the 1930s, Hakka. 
There was also Ouyang Xiao, who we covered in episode CHP 71. He was a Hakka who rose to great heights in the Song government. How about Aubun Ha and his brother Aubun Par? They brought us tiger bomb oil. They're also a topic that made it to the original list I came up with almost five years ago. Still haven't gotten around to them yet. Fascinating story. Hey, and veteran actor and coolness personified, Zhao Yunfat, Hakka ancestry too. Ye Jian Ying, by the way, was from Meixian, the worldwide corporate headquarters of all things Hakka. So he was considered during his lifetime somewhat of a poster boy in China of how high up a Hakka might rise. There was a time in the 1980s when the leaders of Singapore, Taiwan, and China were all of Hakka descent. Li Guan Yu, Li Denghui, and Deng Xiaoping. Charlie Song, he was a Hakka. That made all his famous children. Song Ai Ling, Song Ching Ling, and Song Mei Ling, and TV Song, all Hakka too. It was that Hakka bond that tied Charlie Song to Sun Yat-sen and Sun's vision for a modern Chinese republic. The list of Hakka greats from history goes on. But after looking at my watch, I can see we're now into stoppage time. So I'll cut it short right here. Uh, last episode in part 10 of the tea series, I mentioned Hunan Xinyang Maojian tea as being the tea that is grown in the most northerly part of China. Well, I stand corrected. In Laoshan, in Shandong near Qingdao. They grow tea up there too. And this nice Laoshan green tea enjoys the extra added benefit of the pure underground aquifers of Laoshan close by. So thanks to Wen Laoshi for pointing that nugget out. Hey, Wen Laoshi is from Qingdao. So of course, she wasn't going to stand idly by and allow me to falsely proclaim that the most northern grown tea in China is in Xinyang and Hunan. I mean, she had to stand up for Shandong province and say something. That's it. Until next time, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a secret location in beautiful, sunny Southern California. The lead news items on TV are scenes from the snow and freezing cold in the eastern part of the country. Man, no such thing here. Blue skies and, hey, my windows are open here at the CHP Research and Recording Complex. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.